Code Story is mixed and mastered in one click with ClipGain. Make your podcast sound loud, clear, and clean in only one click with ClipGain.io. You know, being a startup is about just finding a business model. That's what you're doing. And I think that as a software company, your roadmap needs to be as closely linked to that business model as possible. You really can't necessarily separate the business model you're trying to find as a startup, right? How are you going to get paid from the features you need that people will pay for? My name is Adrienne Bulger, and I'm the founder and CTO at Block Health. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Adrian Bolger set out to solve the bureaucracy in credentialing healthcare professionals using the blockchain. All this and more on Code Story. Adrian Bolger grew up in the Midwest and quickly moved up to Boston to attend MIT. She's a lover of running and was a jujitsu martial arts coach at the Institute. Growing up, she loved art and math and found her way into computer science, trying to find the intersection of both. Bolger interned at Pixar and tinkered in robotics and medical devices. And eventually she founded Block Health, which aims to solve healthcare credentialing and the pains associated with moving yourself, your practice, or even working in another state. I sat down with Jared, my co-founder. What is it going to take to solve this problem? Well, one of the problems in credentialing is there's a lot of duplication, there's a lot of data silos, and no one trusts other people's data. So we decided to use some technology from Ethereum blockchain, open source distributed ledger, to deal with the fact that no one trusts each other and no one trusts where files came from a problem known as primary source verification in this space. So that was the first thing we knew our MVP needed. The second thing that we knew we needed was more, less exotic, I would say, a common application. Credentialing has, it's like taxes, but way worse. There's so many forms, they all need the same information. They're dozens to hundreds of pages long, and each hospital or insurance company that a healthcare professional wants to work with has a 50-page application that's just slightly different from, you know, the next company down the road. And so we knew that solving that problem was going to be huge for our MVP. And then the third thing we knew we needed was a way of getting the data from those first two pieces into and out of our solution. Because building up, you know, just one big data entry pile, it doesn't make customers very happy, right? They're putting all this data in and they can't get it out. And the whole point of fixing this problem and smoothing the way and preventing data silos is that the data has to come out at some point. So those three, I guess you could call them sort of customer slash technical requirements, always at the front of our minds when we were trying to figure out what we needed to build. The initial version of that technology took about three to four months to get sort of off the ground and and in pieces. We split it into three different parts. 
We had one part that we hired a contractor for, that was the, the blockchain technology. We licensed commercial software, and then we also licensed the paid open source software, where the software is open source, but we wanted the premium support. And much of the work was then spent taking those three pylons and doing the integration code on top of them. The sort of keywords to search is we ended up using Docker. Uh, we used the mean stack for our, our front end, which is and backend, which is Mongo, Express, Angular, and Node. We used NGINX servers. Uh, we used a great open source premium software called Form.io, commercial PDF management software called PDFtron. And then for Ethereum and blockchain, the biggest tool chains that are the most supported are a library called truffle.js and a tool chain called Infura. So that was a lot of software to dump on a problem, but we did decide we needed all of it right out the gate. In general, I think MVPs are supposed to be smaller than ours was, but that's not what we needed. So that's not what we built. That's awesome. So I get the blockchain technologies that you were using. Um, you know, I get sort of the tools you're using there, but what made you decide to go with the mean stack over, you know, something else, maybe some React based stuff or um, anything like that? Uh, so honestly, initially, I had less experience with Angular than I did with React. I had worked with both. I didn't have a strong opinion, given that we did have the luxury of starting completely greenfield. And what honestly brought it down on the side of Angular was the blockchain contractors that we were working with, who we had already chosen and vetted for their blockchain expertise, didn't have the staff to also uh, create a front end in React. They had experts in blockchain and they had experts in Angular. And ultimately we decided that their blockchain expertise was more important. And if we needed to you know, switch the front end framework at a later date, we would just have to do that. I wish I could say that there was a great technical you know, debate between the two, which is something that had actually already happened at a prior company I was at, uh, two prior companies actually, that I was at had the, um, had the great React versus Angular debate. But for the startup, it, it ended up not being a technical reason at all. As you're building that early version, what decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term? You know, I'm leaning towards more technical debt. You know, how did you cope with those decisions and decide, okay, this is the way we're going to build it for now so that we can get out a little bit quicker, even though you had a lot of technology you were implementing and juggling? So some of that was, you know, the contractors where we did choose to outsource overseas for the contractors. And so the iteration cycle there was very long. And so pieces would come back, you know, the next day, two days later, and deciding, oh, well, this isn't exactly how we want it. This style is wrong. This CSS is wrong. This flow isn't how we want, but it does work. Is it worth the risk of, you know, the contractors were very helpful. They would happily spend more time on it, right? If we wanted something slightly different. Sure. Um, they're good so like that. Yeah, they're yeah, contractors that are that are paid by the hour and project tend to be tend to be very flexible in that manner. So you have to decide at some point, okay, you know, this doesn't have Google's file and or Dropbox's file interface, but we have to use it as is. You know, this doesn't have the autofill features that we need it or that we will want it to have that will speed up data entry by five whole minutes. But we need to stop here because if we don't, then you're going to add another four to five days per feature 
by the time you implement test and get it back to us. And so a lot of it was the, and I think some of this is both the blessing and the curse of working with some non-technical co-founders. The, the standard is all of Google. The standard is LinkedIn. You know, well, why doesn't it work like LinkedIn? Well, because there's only one of me, you know, so that negotiation was, was definitely a key sort of piece in our decision making. And then there were also some decisions on the technology side where, you know, initially I was like, no, we're going to have, you know, automated continuous integration right from the beginning. We're going to be able to scale super fast. And, you know, a week or two into that investigation, you know, I'm looking at the, what you really need to start the business, got a small, you know, set up single server. Do we really need to deploy Kubernetes right now for our, you know, MVP? And no, no, you don't. Like, it's awesome, but you don't, you shouldn't spend, you know, your time on that. You should let a DevOps expert spend their time on that and hire them three years from now. You know, there's this, no, everything's got to be perfect because it's a greenfield project. And so pulling back from the perfectionism is key to actually getting something out the door. Absolutely. Ready, fire, aim kind of thing. Get it out the door. You don't need Kubernetes at the beginning. I like that. There should probably be some sort of tagline. Uh, created by all founding CTOs that you don't need Kubernetes out of the gate. But I mean, of course, the part of the problem was this was all last March and last March, Google had their big Kubernetes, we're launching Kubernetes to the world at our developer conference. That was all anyone you know talked about for, for a solid eight weeks there. The, the trade-off between, well, actually, Google's spending a lot of advertising dollars on this. It's not, you know, this didn't come out of nowhere, you guys. Right, we're not just playing with tools. So then as you you made those decisions, you built the MVP, you know, you decided where to scale and where not to appropriately. How did you progress the product further from that point? How did you mature it as the company grew? So we got our first live customer on the product sometime around October because it was our first customer. We obviously sort of went out of our way above and beyond to do as much of the initial sort of manual data entry work on the platform as possible so that we could be the first users. We could catch a lot of the problems that we knew we were going to run into with this brand new product. And it quickly became apparent that one thing that had been thought of as a nice to have turned out to be crucial. And that was bulk data workflows, bulk uploads, bulk downloads, bulk queries, role-based access control, group bulk access control, things that are you know, if you have a version that works in singular, it's not that difficult, you think, to make it all work in bulk, but we didn't have that. And so that became the immediate priority other than just bug fixing, obviously, for the next version, because we realized, oh, we can't do this again. Like, we literally will not be able to onboard another customer if we don't have bulk import features. <laughs> like, nope, this will not continue. This cannot continue. This episode of Code Story is sponsored by Tresta. Tresta is a mobile app that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. With Tresta, you can set up your business phone number, download the app, and start calling and texting unlimited right away. Tresta is the best business phone app on the market. Whether you're a founder or freelancer starting your business or you're already established. Growing your network and your business is all about communication. You've got to be available no matter where you are. Tresta offers the call management features that empower you to communicate smarter and more efficiently, like auto attendance, call recording, user groups, and more. And you don't need any special equipment, just the smartphone you're already using. 
Tresta is easy to configure, so you can set everything up yourself, all online. It's just $15 per user per month, with no contract. So start your free 30-day trial today at tresta.com slash codestory. That's www.tresta.com slash codestory, all one word. So one of my next questions is sort of how do you build your roadmap? And that ties in pretty nicely with what you're saying. So you figured out you needed bulk import in a lot of different ways. You needed, needed a way to process some sort of mass chunk of transaction somehow. And you figured that out in some way. So what was the process for figuring out that was the most important thing to build next? And then even building on that, how do you build your roadmap? Yeah, so the roadmap that we said at Block Health right now, it's very close, very, very closely tied with your business model. There's a quote from someone, one of those famous startup books, I can't remember which one, which is about, you know, being a startup is about just finding a business model. That's what you're doing. And I think that as a software company, your roadmap needs to be as closely linked to that business model as possible. You really can't necessarily separate the business model you're trying to find as a startup right? How are you going to get paid from the features you need that people will pay for? They're very closely linked. So the way that we have sort of built out our roadmap is, okay, we actually start with the business goals because my co-founder comes from sales. He's wildly optimistic. Those business goals are often not something I can build with the current team size. So then you have to go through this sort of pairing, pairing back of, Okay, well, what software would it take to build to get to that amount of revenue, right, that the people want? And what can we pare down with the biggest chunk that needs to be in place? And then paired with that, obviously, because it's software, there's also just a set of things that aren't negotiable. We're moving into a world of people and small businesses and tech companies getting prosecuted for lazy data management, for not protecting their customer data. So one thing we've definitely spent just money on with, you know, commercial platforms to go with our software is backups of customer data, security, commercial database hosting, audit logging. So there's a set of things that are the phrase I've started to use is table stakes, right? These things must be available before you can even go to the poker table. So you have your table stakes and then you have what you need to make money and that is usually more than a year and a half worth of product goals. And then you just prioritize those by what is the next problem you are going to hit. Not a very elegant process, but I do think that it has worked really well for us because it keeps the non-engineering team in the loop and it keeps it very tightly coupled, which we can do because we have a small team. Right. That makes sense. Well, speaking of that, so that's a great segue. How did you build your team and aligning it with product development? So specifically talking about your engineering team. So for engineering product development, it's really important that you can find people who have deep knowledge in the specific technology that you're already working in. At the stage we are at now, we the expression I use is we sort of can't afford interns. I think that interns and new hires are sort of owed training. They're owed, you know, best practices and mentorship. And I think that every new engineer should be looking for those things in their first job. I am also self-aware enough to know that at the current time, providing those is not going to happen. So really looking for people who are very comfortable working on their own, 
very comfortable working from written specifications and uh, more experience is how we've structured the sort of recs for the team that we're looking for. And people also familiar with particular technologies that we're already working in because the cost, I think, of being sort of the startup founder CTO type person is that I am never going to be as good at Angular, at React, at Express, at any of these technologies as a developer that spends their time on it. And so acknowledging that and just being like, nope, I'm going to find someone who is better than me at this. They're going to take it. It has been a key piece of what I look for. That's awesome. I definitely hear that at Variable. I'm surrounding myself with people that are way better than me, and I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. <laughs> I like that situation. So you mentioned you know, not building the software when it's an MVP to be you know, uber scalable. But how did you move towards scalability as the product started to grow and as your team started to grow? Has there been challenges with scalability? Have you been fighting it or has it sort of been a seamless transition? Tell me about that. Yeah, so for us, for the space we're in, um, we have a little bit of a luxury, which is that if we captured 100% of the credentialing market of the United States, that would be 8 million healthcare professionals. Now that's a lot, we're not going to get there. But it also means that with the technologies that are out there in the last five to seven years, Google Cloud, things like that, uh, and also given the fact that we aren't processing video or any large files, we are not going to hit a scalability problem in 90% of our software until we're enormously successful. You, we could you know, handle thousands of users at the moment and it wouldn't be a problem. No one's got, you know, gigabytes of data. So the scalability issue that has sort of kept me up as the CTO of Block Health is very limited. It's the blockchain piece. So really looking into the specific parts of our technology that might not scale and the blockchain piece would absolutely be it. And so you're looking into standards, looking at how other people already handle this problem and really looking at some open standards that are designed to deal with this problem is how I've been tackling it. I had a former colleague of mine who used to use this as a an interview question for interviewing engineers. And he would say, you know, if your product became an overnight success, what would break first? And I always liked phrasing it that way because it's not that the answer is never nothing, right? There's something that is always the limit to what you are trying to do. And you just need to know what in your system is the bottleneck. And so for us at the moment, that is the blockchain technology, but not only is the open source community sort of solving that for us in some ways, the standards that we've looked at will keep our issues with scalability shouldn't be a problem until we get into the hundreds of thousands of users, which is you know a good problem for us to have. Absolutely, right, that's the right time to scale. That is interesting, though, having the bottleneck be the blockchain technology, it being sort of open source and almost kind of being out of your hands to speed up. Is that scary for you and your team at all? Or, or you know, how does that work for you guys? It was scary for about a week until I found existing the existing workarounds, essentially. So there was a week there of, I don't know if we can do this at all. That was back in when we were building the MVP, so last March or last April, that required me to, you know, really dig through sort of the bowels of the internet, being like, okay, but seriously, how did you deal with it? And the simplest, you know, solutions 
technologically, basically it's the tree data structures where you, you know, hash part of something onto the blockchain and then you can prove things that branched off of that haven't changed either. So it's a sort of delegated blockchain technology that solves the problem right now. And well, it's usually not considered very elegant, which is why the mainstream open source blockchain community is trying to implement something better. It does work uh, for the sizes that we're looking at, which would be in the tens of thousands of documents, you know, per day or week, rather than the millions or the trillions, which is where you get the articles from people like, you know, credit card companies being like, no, blockchain is not going to work. You know, we have billions of transactions. Well, that's true. Blockchain technology isn't going to scale to the billions of transactions. That's why they're redesigning it. But for the tens of thousands, you know, we're all, we'll be all right for quite some time. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across Block Health and everything that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think I'm really proud of the the team sort of attitude we have. There's only three of us, so it's difficult to say that, you know, how much of that was my two co-founders. But I really like the sort of rapport we have going with trying to pick up the slack from each other, non-coders being fine with sort of learning how to do some pieces of technical work where they can and you know me trying to make sure I understand the problem on the other side I'd really like to keep that I think it's part of our our culture going forward the collaborative culture is something I'm proud of because I think that that's had a lot to do with how sort of flexible we've been able to be and how fast we have been able to progress the software Absolutely so let's flip the script a little bit Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, so honestly, the biggest mistake I've probably made so far is, you know, we have worked with several contractors. And I think the biggest mistake that I as a CTO have made is not interviewing people well. I have made mistakes on both sides, both on wasting a lot of time looking at candidates who were not able to do the job. And then, but also ending up hiring candidates who weren't actually able to do the job that I asked of them because I used the wrong, I guess the description I would say is I probably used the wrong interview questions. Asking someone, have you ever used this technology? How did you use it? And then taking people at their word and then maybe not realizing where the true limits of people's understanding um, with different technologies that I was going to need them to use uh, started or stopped. So the problem with that is then you have a, a contractor who can't do the work possibly at all, but also, you know, then your your whole setup is delayed because your product roadmap assumes you are going to be making progress incrementally and continuously. So I think my team ha was pretty nice to me when they they would be like, I think you need to pick someone else for that job. Or, you know, I think you need to uh, replace that person or add more help. So the full-time members of my team, I think we're, were pretty patient and gracious when I would say one week, okay, I have a contractor. That means that in three weeks, we will have this problem solved. And then three weeks later, they did not have the problem solved. So I am still struggling with how you really get good at that, um, at that interviewing process. Yeah, so that's definitely an area where, you know, I need more sort of experience and work as a CTO is really trying to vet, vet the technology 
people that were trying to get to work with us. Sure. And that makes total sense. I think that's an, a shared problem across many leaders, not to mention CTOs for sure. So what does the future look like for Block Health, for the product and for your team? I mean, the future for the product is to really expand the interoperability of it in the Best case scenario, we would function like plumbing software, right? Software, someone might be using one thing at one end, using their company's software at the other end and not realize that Block Health was the thing going through the middle there. So all of that integration though, you know, you have to build that, you have to use existing pipelines of built software. And so that requires a lot of engineers. So the future of the product is definitely trying to expand, you know, interoperability because there's a pitfall for credentialing software and for healthcare software in particular in our industry of, well, we set out to become one thing and we turned into a successful next version of a data silo. So now we're just another roadblock in the way that everyone's trying to get things to flow through. So really the future of our success, I think, rides on avoiding that giant trap because it's such an easy trap to fall into because there's an obvious business model associated with it, which is, well, you throw the you throw the information into the data silo, data silo and then you charge money for it to come out. And just avoiding that and really getting to that next generation software company where selling people's data is not your business model is what the future looks like for us. So who influences the way that you work? Name an architect, CEO, CTO, tech person, sure, or really anyone that you look up to and why. You know, technical person I look up to the most is a, a former mentor and boss of mine. So someone I worked with directly uh, at a previous company. Um, he was first my mentor and later on when he was promoted and end up, ended up as my boss. And I had, you know, no idea sort of how good I had it because he was one of my first bosses out of, out of school. And he was very low key. He'd say things like, oh, that thing that you coded, can you draw me a design of how it works so that we just have it for documentation and use this format? Uh, and I would, and he would give me feedback and I never felt criticized. And I was always just like, oh, I should be sharing this knowledge of this great code that I've built. And then some point about five years later, I'm mentoring an intern at a, at a different job. I was getting impatient with this intern in my head. And I was like, how can I make this person understand what they're building? And then it, it dawned on me what my mentor had been doing like five years prior that he himself did not actually need like me to explain how software worked to him. Like that, that he actually already understood that. But he'd been sort of teaching me how to do all of that, you know, to think about documentation and architecture and to think about the customer first in design. And he was, he did all of this with, you know, just a lot of patience, a lot of, you know, he's always willing to restate a problem in a non-technical manner for a non-technical audience. You know, he was also technically just excellent and that he could always imagine himself sort of in other people's shoes. And so, you know, if I'm trying to figure out how to work, I always want to be like, okay, well, what would Dave do? Like, he would be more patient. He would draw it out. Like, he would go find the stakeholders. Just having that sort of like knowledge that nope there's there's a way to do this that is like patience you know because patience is not one of my natural strengths to put it lightly has been really helpful for me to just have this like model to look at both from a technical and then also from a sort of interpersonal perspective 
Sure, that's awesome. So if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or consider taking another approach on? I would buy more software. That sounds crazy. You know, if you're the CTO, Adrian, you're supposed to build it. But, you know, it's almost always cheaper to buy the thing you're looking for than it is to build it. Now, there is a cost to that. You have to integrate it with your existing systems, which is often difficult. But I don't think that we spent enough time at the beginning looking at the entire ecosystem of commercial and commercial open source available sort of software as a services that are out there. We evaluated them sort of on a constraint basis. Like, okay, well, first we pick a database and then we pick a front end. And once we pick those two things, it actually eliminates a lot of the other options for, for email, for message passing, for file storage, because they all have to work together. And so I think if I'd had a chance or if I ever had the chance again to go back, you know, really looking at all of the services that you're going to need and getting a list of every single email provider, every single, you know, message passing architecture, every single queue software, every single file storage commercial option available would have been really helpful. Because what you don't realize until you were halfway through the process where you had a box that just said message passing architecture goes here or third party email service goes here is that the technical choices you make early on eliminate a bunch of the options. You, you can't use them anymore. You know, they don't work anymore. And so that is that is something I would definitely go back a year ago and tell myself to just spend more time looking at your sort of bulk architectural options and consider buying more of them. So you would consider moving, essentially buying more software, you're going to move faster, right? You're not oh, yeah. going to have to build everything from scratch. And so, you know, the engineer in you wants to probably, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, like most of us, wants to build everything to our own specification and perfection. But the entrepreneur in you looks back and sees that we could have moved a lot faster if we would have bought this, this, and this. Is that right? Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Definitely. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a brand new CTO. They just built the next big thing and they're pumped about it. They're about to show it to the world. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? It would depend on what they were a CTO in, but if they were in the realm of, you know, call it software as a service in this day and age, and they hadn't launched it yet, the first thing I would do is ask them if they had TLS on their website, just because there are minimum standards that, that must be met. But So there's more general advice than that, but that's literally the first thing that, that comes to mind of, okay, but do you have a secure website? <laughs> Did you lock down your cloud properly? You know, what I've definitely learned that over the past year doing this as a CTO was Find, if you yourself are not the networker, because, you know, in my company, I'm not really the networker. That's that's my co-founders. Both my co-founders are director of operations and credentialing, and then the CEO spend a lot more time than I do at conferences, on podcasts even, like talking to people. If you are not that networking person yourself, you have to find them because there are things in my company that to me just look like magic. Like, oh, we have venture capitalists to pitch to now. 
We have customers to pitch to, to demo to now. We have a pipeline of a hundred people that we're gonna, that our, you know, our CEO is gonna roll through and, you know, narrow down to people who would actually buy our product. I show up, I build technology, I give them the demo, but that is all work. And as a engineer who sat in a room with other engineers or in an office with other engineers, I was not properly exposed to that before I worked at a startup where I sat next to the salespeople, right? Before I sat next to the operations people. So if you yourself are not, you know, that person as a technology specialist or as a first-time CTO, you need to find them. And you either need to become them or you need to hire them into your company because it just happens. Like you hire the right people and things just happen. And you're like, I have no idea how we have 60 people that I'm going to pitch to, but we do. Yes. So it can't all be about sort of you or your tech. That's the other thing. It's not, that's the other thing that's so hard. I think that most engineers would be willing to check their own ego at the door, but their tech is their baby. Like, no, it's not really about your tech either. Like it's not, it's not about you and it's not about the thing you built. You really need those other people. <laughs> Absolutely. Ladrian, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Block Health. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Season two episodes are co-produced and edited by Bradley Denham. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.